But I really thought, let's put technology in the hands of the worker that they own, where they own the data. It's not owned because their company subscribed to some technology company and they're going to provide all this data and then leave that employer and then have nothing to show for it. The whole goal and one of the insights was 92% of hourly workers say making under 20 at the time, an hour. 92% are not on LinkedIn. It's not that they are not allowed to be on LinkedIn. It's that they were never provided with the training and mentorship to advocate for themselves on paper in a way that was meaningful. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And my guest today is John Pepper. John is actually a former student, graduated over 25 years ago from the Tuck School MBA program, but has lived in the Hanover area for some time, along with a few other places. He is the founder of a burrito business called Boloco, B-O-L-O-C-O. And actually the company is about 25 years old, as it turns out. I think it was a project for him in business school. John's really interesting because he is creative. He's done all sorts of different things. He's written a book or writing a book. He was an Uber driver, I think kind of for fun to see what that experience was like. He's dealt with investors and venture capitalists on both sides of the equation, but he also has a deep passion for restaurant workers and other very often hourly workers that have not the best working conditions. And I think in our post-COVID world, we really discovered just how tough it is for people who are working jobs like that. And actually for people with restaurants, how difficult it is to actually find people. In this episode, we're going to talk about this idea for Beloco and where the idea came from, how he raised money and how he thought about it. And obviously COVID really hit Beloco pretty dramatically. And we'll talk about that. John's really interesting. His dad, also John Pepper, was the CEO of Procter & Gamble, a legendary company, of course, and he was a legendary CEO. I had a chance to meet the P&G John Pepper years ago and actually not that long ago when he was visiting. We were chatting and just a really dynamic person and obviously somebody who's put a huge influence on our guest today in his life as well. He's heavily involved with the Alpha Delta fraternity. What is that? Well, that's actually one of the frats at Dartmouth College that has, let's just say, one of the most mixed backgrounds. The house was closed down. It is as I record this and as John and I are speaking, it still is closed down for all sorts of activities that shouldn't have happened. But as another example of how John Pepper thinks a little bit differently, he's recreated the frat house as a kind of shared workspace for local companies, especially entrepreneurial companies, and is trying to generate something special out of that. I mentioned social justice in business. He has another startup about livable wages for hourly workers, and that's called Worthy. He's also been a big investor in all kinds of small businesses and startups, and I think that's pretty interesting as well. And he's kind of at a crossroads himself in terms of his life and where he wants to go and what he wants to do next. There's a lot to talk about with John. He's an interesting guy. He's a leader. And as I already said, he's very, very knowledgeable about the restaurant business and about the startup community and kind of fits into the profile I like to find for so many SIDCast guests. So without any further ado, let's welcome John Pepper to the SIDCast. Welcome back to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And on this episode, I have my old pal and former student, no less, John Pepper. Hey, John, how you doing? Good. Thanks, Sid. Thanks for having me on here. Oh, I'm glad to have you on. So much to talk about this. You've had and have, it's not past tense, a really interesting career, done a lot of cool stuff. And I want to start with Boloco, which is, for those people who don't know it, it used to be called The Wrap, I think, but a burrito chain, a small chain. There is a store in Hanover that is extremely popular, and you have a bunch in the Boston area as well. Where did this idea come from in the first place? First of all, Boloco turned 25 years old in February of 2022. This is no spring chicken. I was transferred to San Francisco in 1995 when I was in medical devices. And I was just one of those people that got very passionate about different food concepts, different products, different technologies that I saw. But in particular, I saw a concept in the San Francisco Marina District that I fell absolutely in love with. I was their number one customer. And it was the first time I had seen a deviation from rice, beans, and cheese on a Mexican burrito. 
And so I thought to myself, as I got ready to go back to Tuck, this is such a cool idea. Could I franchise it? What could I do with that? And so the idea really was stemmed from seeing others innovating, what I say today, innovating within the tortilla. When I got to Tuck in the fall of 95, I could still not stop talking about it with my friends. So that's where the idea started by being a customer. So one thing you said that I want to ask you about is, so you went to this place, you liked it. And what did you think you thought about, well, how could I get in the business with them? How can I do the same thing? I mean, that's the entrepreneur question. A lot of people don't ask that question. Yeah. So where did that come from, do you think? I don't know. It was not new to me. I had looked at a number of different businesses over the years. A couple restaurant concepts when I was in my very early 20s, right out of college. I've just never been afraid to go up and ask the question. And in this particular case, I went up to the counter and ask them, are you franchising? Because this needs to be in the East Coast. They said, absolutely not. Take your order and go. I'm actually very close. An investor in one of the founders of that company, which was called World Wraps, very good friends 25, 27 years later, which is interesting how things do come around. Yeah. I'm always curious about what's ticking behind any business And frankly, any job, I ask people to this day, how is your job? What's it like to work here? What's this business like? So that's how it starts. You could have been a professor with that type of mindset, you know. (laughs) I always say that the most important skill to be a great, let's say, teacher and researcher is to ask good questions. Not all my colleagues would agree with that, but I think that's certainly the case for me and when I think about other people. Yeah. Curiosity goes a long way, long, long way. So you went to business school and I think you created a project around this. And then did you do this right after graduating or did you do something else? No, I did it during. I opened our first restaurant in February 24th of 97 during my second year. For me, it was a side project. Project. It was a way to kind of dabble in entrepreneurship, knowing, of course, I wasn't really going to be a restaurant guy. I'm not a restaurant guy. I went through corporate recruiting. I was on Wall Street between first and second year at Smith Barney. I took a full-time position at Montgomery Securities, which I thought was the coolest investment bank out there. And on the side, I had this restaurant that I started with two partners, one of whom I grew up with in Cincinnati, and the other was a fraternity brother of his at Boston University. And I was the one writing the business plan in Professor Bladen's entrepreneurship class. Beloka was my e-ship project during second year. So for spring break of that year, I went skiing with my top classmates in Jackson Hole for the first week. And for the second week, I went and made burritos and wraps, as we called them at the time. We'd been open about a month. So that's how I started to split my time. After you graduate, you did go to Wall Street. I knew after a month working the restaurant after graduation that I was in trouble with the decision I had made to return to corporate America. So I flew out to San Francisco and met with one of the partners at Montgomery, which has since been gobbled up a few times. I think I would be part of Beck of America today, not surprisingly. But I met with them to tell them I could not accept the offer. I was going to have to go back on my commitment. And it felt very horrible. Somehow through a few drinks and a visit to one of their beautiful homes on Pacific Heights, they convinced me me to take six months to get the restaurant out of my system and to show up in January of 98, which I did. In those six months, I put my MBA to work. I figured I've got an MBA. I know what mergers and acquisitions are. Let me buy a small competitor. So when I left Boston in early January of 98, I had just finished acquiring a struggling two-unit competitor, one in Harvard Square, one over at Boston College. And mind you, we were struggling too. So what I didn't realize was I was not buying my way out of problems. I was tripling them, if not quadrupling them. So and I leave it all to the hands of my partners, Adam and Greg, Jason to figure it out while I go off and try to make my fortune in the investment banking world. I made it 80 days at Montgomery Securities. 80 days. Um, 80 days. Not a proud moment, but I knew I was in even bigger trouble when I flew back to Boston to take my Series 7, Series 63 exam and had to take a class, ended up working cash at one of our restaurants instead of going to the class. Passed the exams very easily, but knew that my heart wasn't in the trading world that I was part of. It wasn't much longer than that that I gave my notice, which was a very challenging thing to do, but I knew I had to do it. Let me ask you about that just as a kind of capsule picture. So you walked into the same partner or a partner's office to tell him, I mean, you had something written, no doubt. And oh, yeah. they looked at you like you were crazy. So how did that conversation go? Or did they understand it? Because you it was terrible. This- no, they did not understand. They did not. They were upset. No, they were very upset. They said, I'd never work on the street again. I kind of thought to myself, well, this isn't really Wall Street anyway. It's San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't say that, did you? 
That would have been funny. That would be a movie moment. I did it. I had said it many times Said, You know, I feel bad. I don't know if I've ever reached out to the guy. I wrote him a letter apologizing for him taking me under his wing. It felt bad to do it. But our business was really struggling when I was out there. One of my partners wasn't talking to me anymore. Felt like I had abandoned them. And the other had lost his passion for doing the work required to build a restaurant business. And I'd put in my own money, my own savings from medical devices, but also my family's money to make that acquisition happen. And I was feeling very stressed about that. I will say that sometimes the most expensive money you can take, people are like, oh, what an advantage. Yes when your friends and family can invest, but it is very expensive emotionally. It really takes a toll because you don't want to let people down. And as they say, and it's true, Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners are not the same. <laughs> you know, we've got a few hundred grand at stake. So I went back. I U-hauled everything back. I broke my lease. I've got pictures. I actually videoed my last day going into Montgomery, the Transamerica building. I U-hauled my trip back. It took three days and got to work. How long did it take for Beloco to become a thriving business to turn it around. I mean, it's not even right to say to turn it around because it's still a startup, but it became pretty big, sizable and successful. So how did that happen? The first thing we had to do when I got back was realize we don't know what we're doing. We need to hire talent. We need to hire someone who's better than us. It wasn't a unanimous decision, but we all ultimately relented that that was what was necessary. We hired our first director of operations. He put things in order. He did our first food inventory, things that I should have known from accounting, but you know, just didn't do it put a P&L together that started to really work. We started to build a model that gave us confidence in 1999, took a year and change to open our fourth restaurant. When we opened our fourth restaurant in 99, we actually hired real architects to do it. We had something that was differentiated. We had a mission that had evolved over the prior year, which was really to focus on using food, using profits to improve the lives of the people who work in fast food and in food service versus using our people to enrich ourselves, right? It was an opposite mission. And that fourth store seemed to turn, spark something in the financial district of Boston. It translated into incredible sales growth at our other three restaurants. And so we felt like we were on our way. A little bit of a hiccup in 2000 when we acquired yet again, um, sometimes I get ahead of myself, a struggling juice company called Jarrah's Juice. We brought in new partners. We had nine restaurants all of a sudden. I ended up having to shut down four of those over the following year, the juice concepts. But what we got out of it, which paid for the whole deal, was our fifth restaurant, our fifth, what I'll call our core restaurant, which was on Newberry Street. The, the economics of that one location paid for the whole deal. And that was something I couldn't have known until looking back a few years later. Right. But we sort of hobbled our way, you know, around 2004, which is when we had what I'll call an identity crisis because we were called the rat for those first seven years. Right. And in fact, we were called Underwraps for a few months. Marriott had that name trademarked. People would ask me, is your name trademarked? Did you protect it? Oh, absolutely. We had not. <laughs> so Marriott made us change our name to The Wrap. That was fine for seven years. It was actually a meeting with Howard Schultz from Starbucks that took me like six years to get in front of him where I posed to him the name crisis I was having, which is The Wrap is so generic. People think of cold deli meat, plastic wrapped gas station type items. And that's not what we do at The Wrap. Mexican burrito is a big part of what we do and globally inspired burritos. That led to, at the end of our meeting, where we visited many departments in the Seattle headquarters, I said, do you see the problem? Because he asked all of these employees at Starbucks headquarters, what do you think of the name of the wrap? What do you think of burritos? What do you think of wraps? And at the end of our meeting, I said, do you see the problem? He goes, I do. And I knew a name change was in order. Mm -hmm. And so we endeavored to do that. So by 2005, we rebranded all 10 restaurants at that time from the wrap to Boloco. Boloco. Yeah, to Boloco, which could be a Mexican place. <laughs> it doesn't actually mean anything, but it does stand for Boston local companies sort of quietly in the backdrop. Very unique name. When you Googled it in 2004, nothing came up. And we like that uniqueness and ability to protect a brand. What happened with Howard Schultz? You said it took you six years to get a meeting with him. Well, this is the classic story, right? So I went on a letter writing campaign starting in 1998. So maybe it was five years because it was 03 when I met him. It was not my letter writing. It was not my witty use of words. It was the fact that when I was able to ask my dad, you know, when you meet with him next, because dad was at Procter & Gamble at the time, would you let him know that your son has been writing him for five or six years? And he goes, I'll do that. Unfortunately, that is what created the opportunity for the meeting, not my letter writing. So yeah. connections are still all too important these days, which I hope is changing these days. I think it is. That's a whole other topic around privilege and opportunity. 
And the fact that you could do that where a lot of other people could not to get in front of Howard, but you did and you got the name change. And how did you end up getting, you had over 20 stores at one point. 22, yeah, at our peak. In 2006, we'd put about $2 million into the business to get 10 restaurants, which looking back was 200,000 per restaurant. I think it was actually 2.5, so 250 per restaurant. We were good. I mean, we were efficient building our restaurants. They were profitable restaurants other than the one at BC was always a little bit of a problem child. But even in its heyday, it was making 150,000 at the bottom line. But I decided nine years in, it's time to see what we're worth. I hired a customer to be our banker and to run a process to raise capital to grow. I think I pitched to 39 different groups, rejected 35 times, four term sheets. And in 2007, we landed our first $10 million private equity investment from a group in Chicago who had originally been the original investors in Chipotle before they were bought out by McDonald's. We ended up moving from family run to really professional investors at our back with a really solid board. One of the best boards in the industry, I would say. They were very hands-on given their experience. They were sort of hands-on, hands-off. They would be hands-on when things were either really good or during the recession really bad, the recession of 08, 09. They were very supportive in the first couple of years, I would say, and supportive of me personally. Their main objective was to transform me from an entrepreneurial CEO, they said, to a professional CEO. Anybody who knows me knows that the chances of that actually happening successfully were about nothing. That is actually what happened. I never have become the professional CEO that I was supposed to become. I know at one point, you know, it was pretty traumatic. I mean, the type of thing you put onto TV also, the CEO being pushed out and other things like that. So what happened? <laughs> yeah, I was the CEO, the hired gun, I guess, at that point for six years. So from 07 to 13. The recession was tough. It was the first time we'd really been down. Same store sales is the metric that we live and breathe by in the restaurant business. Like same store sales is same unit sales over prior year. And that was the first time we were down, like in a couple of different months, we were down 15%. I think for the year, we might've been down 9%. Complete disaster until the pandemic, of course. <laughs> Where those numbers would be wonderful. Oh, they would be. Never thought we'd see what we've seen recently. We'll talk about that in a minute too. Totally. So we opened a number of restaurants. We put more money in. And then in 2012, 13, we were getting ready to open in DC, which we did. We opened two restaurants in DC. And the debate that we had internally was, do we raise money before we go to DC in the event that DC doesn't operate or perform like we think it will? Or do we wait for DC to open? And with the expected amazing outcomes, raise our next round for growth after we open in DC. I actually thought we should raise it immediately, get the cash in just in case. Well, that's not what we did. DC opened super hot, great press, so fun, new designs. Those were our like 19th and 21st restaurants. And this is now in 2012, 2000, going into 2013. And then they started a sadness. And that was not concept related, it was operations. It was just difficulty managing on the ground. So when we went to raise capital, it was not as smooth as it had been in 2006, 2007. We ended up with a couple of term sheets and then we ended up with a deal in hand for a $15 million raise to get us to 60 restaurants by 2016 is the goal. That's where I always kind of remember the number in our business plan. In the 11th hour, in the fall of 2013, my existing investors called me and said, don't know how to say this, so we're just going to say it. We are not supportive of the deal that's about to close. Of course, I almost thought it was a joke. Here we'd been going through due diligence for three, four months. I had a three or four month year old newborn too at the same time. And we've been in the process for nine months. And they said, our board is not in favor. Our board being the private equity firm's board. We're not in favor of doing this. We won't do it and stop. We have a blocking right. So we'll block it if we need to. In disbelief, I gave three options a few days later in writing to my board, which was, duh, we do this deal. It's $15 million. It's everything to us. Our 22nd store is about to open and we're going to run out of money. We need to do this. Or we're going to have to cut our support staff and everything else. Two is put in $4 million yourselves and I will act like it's okay, even though I don't think it is. Three is you have my resignation for what's called good reason in my contract, which means I'm resigning for good reason and you therefore have to pay me a couple of years. And I knew they wouldn't do that. Who would ever do that? I would never do that. That's ultimately what they did. It happened very quickly. It was a matter of three days between thinking we were about to close on the $15 million deal and me being completely out. That was challenging, to say the least. You remember the morning after <laughs> when you woke up? What was going on? I woke up 
up in Chicago. I flew to Chicago to finalize everything in person on a Sunday. Met with our chairman and our lead investor in their offices on a Sunday afternoon. It was quick. I think they felt like they got lucky because I didn't ask for anything more than what I was contractually owed. I probably should have. That's what most people seem to do. I've been told since. I remember walking around Chicago. I went to a little restaurant, had nobody in there. I sat there, I took pictures of the restaurant like I always would, to get ideas. But the next morning was more important because I woke up, I went to Protein Bar, which is a restaurant concept that Catterton, which I'm very close with now as a private equity firm, Catterton had chosen Protein Bar some months prior to invest in them versus us. And I was trying to figure out what do they have that we don't have? I love the idea of Catterton investing us. Beyond that, though, I got into an Uber with a guy named Shabi. And I did what I said I did earlier, which is I asked him, how's Uber? How's it going? I mean, I love transportation. I loved the idea of disruption. And he was telling me all about his great time on Uber. I said, you know, what? today is the first day of the rest of my life. I should also become an Uber driver. And he goes, if you do that, I get $250 and you get $250. And I signed up for Uber while I was in that car. And that's what I did for the months that followed. I became an Uber driver back in Boston. And honestly, had a blast about doing it, wrote about it, and it informed me in a lot of the work I've done since. So an interesting first morning. Well, that's not what somebody would have anticipated. Probably you as well. So just to wrap up on the Beloco, why did the existing private equity firm say no, they didn't want this extra $15 million? So as it turns out, they were in the process of raising a new fund, a second fund. What I learned is they had allegedly marked us up to a certain valuation, which was higher than we were actually worth. So while the deal that was in place, in hand, ready to go, was valued at a valuation that really worked for us as a company, it didn't work for our fund as they tried to convince new LPs to come in because if they recognized the investment, it would be a down round and a down round would cause angst and friction in their efforts to raise their second fund. So it really, in the end, had nothing to do with us. And nothing to do with you, had to do with them with their fundraising. Yeah, it had to do with them. That's my understanding. I mean, they obviously were never able to share that with me. Everything kept coming down to fiduciary. That's the word that gets thrown around as like saying, I read it in The Economist, therefore it's true. If you say fiduciary, everybody gets quiet. Like, oh, it's our fiduciary. Well, the interesting thing about some of the investor groups is they have two fiduciary responsibilities. One is to the board of the company that they invested in, but the other is to their own firm's board and constituents. You know, I've learned a lot about that conflict over the years since. Right. That's actually not necessarily private equity firm, but whatever the interests are of the investors, that's a very big deal. I've seen that in a lot of companies because you think the board member has got the interest, has the fiduciary responsibility for the company that they're sitting on, but their interests are going to be more diverse. And that's just the way it is. And to be honest, they were willing to let our company completely fail because relative to the fund they were raising, Boloco was very small. And they knew we weren't going to go away tomorrow. So there was nothing that needed to be recognized. And I've seen this a lot since too. And I've heard more. Once you experience it yourself, you find others who have been in the same position. This is like a principle of life. Once you do anything, you will notice the brain starts getting triggered, right? Not just people telling you, but you're just alert to it. It's kind of like you buy a car and everywhere you see the same car now, but you never paid any attention to it. It's something about how our brains work. Did you see the Showtime series on Uber with Travis? Super pumped? Yeah, super pumped. I'm watching it right now. Yeah, that's five episodes in. It's really incredible. It's actually one of the most well done series I've ever seen of this type. I'm telling people to watch it. I'll tell you a story about Uber. I did a couple things. One is I was in midlife crisis, obviously. So I bought a Tesla. Who wouldn't do that, obviously, right? So I had my first Tesla and I became really one of the first people that ever drove Uber in a Tesla. Two things about that. One is I got much higher scores when I was driving my Tesla than my Jeep Wrangler, which that's a whole nother subject we don't need to go into right now, but I thought that was interesting. But the second thing was I was doing Uber partly to get Chevy's 250 because it's like, why not? It's fun. But also, could this be a good second job for people in the restaurant business and hospitality who had traditionally been stuck in two jobs with rigid schedules that just didn't work and ultimately they employed? And I thought this could really work. And I came away thinking it's very positive, but more importantly, and related to Super Pumped, which is kind of hilarious, especially the relationship between Travis and Bill Gurley from Benchmark, which they do a really good job. The venture capitalist, that's right. I went to one of my friends, very close with Bill Gurley, and proposed to him that, what do you think about my joining Uber? And I 
would propose to build what I'll call the fourth leg of the stool that was completely missing was any sort of driver culture or sense of driver care. Talk about naivete. <laughs> Here I go. I get the letter. The letter does get to Bill Gurley, I'm told. But now that you've seen Super Pumped, for however much of it is true, which I assume quite a bit of it is, especially about that relationship, there is no way a letter from this guy in Hanover, New Hampshire, about driver culture coming through Bill Gurley was ever going to get anywhere. I mean, I wrote to Travis multiple times in 2014, which is the timing of what we're watching today on Super Pump. So anyway, super interesting. What did you learn about people as a driver? It depended on what I was wearing. It depended on what the car I was driving was. Honestly, like I was with some Harvard Business School students. They were talking about some place they had been in the Caribbean and I kind of piped up from the front seat that I had been there too. And they couldn't believe the Uber driver was talking to them. And I was wearing a sweatshirt, probably hadn't shaved and was driving the Jeep. When I was driving the Tesla, people thought I was Travis undercover. <laughs> and I will say people, you do see a lot of interesting, you hear a lot of interesting conversations. You see a lot of funny activities. I wrote a lot about this. I blogged four-part series back then about some of those things that came away. But I did come away with a sense that flexibility was going to matter for workers and that we've got to start to figure out how to include people who are stuck in rigid, low-paying jobs, put them into flexible jobs so that they'll find time for better education, skills development, and ultimately a way to get out of low-paying jobs. And I felt like Uber, Lyft, I love Lyft, by the way. I ultimately wrote about how the care towards drivers at Lyft was just so night and day difference. I drove for Lyft as well just to test it. Such a different experience. You know, when you talk about flexibility, I think of autonomy as another word for it. Maybe it's common sense, but there's a lot of research about this as well, which is how important autonomy is for personal satisfaction in one's life and one's work life. When you feel like you have some degree of control as opposed to being imposed on you, it's a gigantic thing. Some of this research goes back to the creation of factories in the early 1900s, the Ford factories and everything that followed after that. And what those factories did is they scripted everything. They took away any discretion, any uh, time any flexibility. And as a result, it was one of the factors that made people feel disconnected from life. The word the sociologists use is something like anomie. I don't know if I'm getting that exactly right, but it means you feel anonymous, which is a pretty terrible way to feel. Totally. Maybe this has something to do with the modern political culture and social culture in America when many people have jobs like that that just take away their feeling about themselves, their sense of agency. They're soul-sucking some of these jobs. I want to ask you one more question about Uber and then I want to talk about your taking on this challenge of making hourly wages, hourly work, in a sense, more meaningful. What did you learn about yourself doing this Uber lift thing? A couple things. I mean, the first thing is that I really do love interacting with people in innovative situations. I got a lot of joy out of being in the vehicle and connecting with people. It led me to all kinds of interesting opportunities at Techstars. Just show up and interesting things will happen. Ask questions, be curious. I had somebody who got in the car and was like, I knew I would get you. I knew I would get you and brought me into mentor some new startup. And that was really interesting to have those kinds of situations take place. My wife would often say, call me halfway through the day and say, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm Ubering. And I've been Ubering since I dropped the kids off at school. And my goal was drop them off at school and then come home unless I get intercepted. And I would go for like six, seven hours at a time because I always got intercepted before I got home by a ride. So I really did enjoy it. But what I learned about me, but more importantly about the work I had been trying to do at that point for almost 15 years related to, I'll call it just worker rights and worker justice and pay equality was that I was receiving feedback for the first time from every ride I did. Every ride, I had a little bit of a sense of how I was doing as a worker in the front seat. And I thought back to the restaurant business and I thought back to all kinds of low paying jobs where nobody knows where they stand. People just don't get regular feedback in any way that helps them sort of understand their strengths. And that led me to start thinking, what can we do to solve that problem? How can we start giving these millions of people in these jobs who aren't getting good feedback and aren't getting performance reviews and are stuck in low-wage jobs? What kind of technology could we put in their hands so that they can start receiving feedback that you and I have received for years, since forever? There's a massive group of people not having the benefit of knowing how they do, where they stand, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and what's my path look like going forward? And so I thought Uber's interesting because I'm getting this feedback. Oh, by the way, I'm rating the customers well. This is before we all knew we were being rated as customers, but I knew it because I got to rate them. And I thought this is a really interesting 360 degree process. Mm -hmm. And let me see what I can do with that. Yeah. 
it's interesting because I've been rated for every single thing I do in the classroom, whether it's an executive program, whether it's a one-time thing, whether it's a regular class. It's been going on for decades. You just get used to it. But I had not thought of the kind of the problem that you were addressing and thinking about, which is for millions of people, there's no such thing. So how did you go about kind of tackling that? Is this getting to the kind of the worthy concept or is it? Yep. Okay. Why don't you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So Worthy came out of that. So Worthy, which is spelled with two E's at the end, it's a company, but really a project, right? It's a company because we incorporated and we raised the pre-seed from friends and family. In this case, I did not feel like we were ready to go to institutional and we weren't. But I really thought, let's put technology in the hands of the workers that they own, where they own the data. It's not owned because their company subscribed to some technology company and they're going to provide all this data and then leave that employer and then have nothing to show for it. The whole goal, and one of the insights was 92% of hourly workers say making under 20 at the time, an hour, 92% are not on LinkedIn. It's not that they are not allowed to be on LinkedIn. It's that they were never provided with the training and mentorship to advocate for themselves on paper in a way that was meaningful. And so when they were on LinkedIn, it usually wasn't doing a great job helping their trajectory. So my goal was, let's start using a supercharged feedback mechanism, which is worthy, which is an app that starts to help the worker's voice go out into the workplace, into the world, give peer reviews, and then also on the flip side, receive feedback, but detailed feedback, not just like one through five stars, are you a good person or not? It's very detailed. You know, I use Gallup, a lot of research-driven questions that people a lot smarter than me have developed over many, many years to try to get a sense of, help people get a sense of what they're good at. Where could they go? That's the ultimate objective of Worthy is to help people catapult out of low paying wages, find their way onto LinkedIn. A couple of my good friends, one is in the restaurant industry, actually owns Dos Toros, who I think you interviewed those guys not long ago. And then the other is a partner at Catterton, who I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So the three of us, endeavor. We put money into this to start up worthy, what became worthy. And we've been kind of plodding along because none of us does it full time ever since. We've got a beautiful product, but product market fit is tough. And right now we have about 6,000 users over the last few years, but we're trying to find, can this actually be a viable business model in addition to just another workforce development type platform. This idea is about creating some sense of empowerment for individual hourly workers over their life, over their careers, in a sense. A company that would buy this, let's say for their employees, they might be helping some of their employees leave them. Well, that's the thing. You have to have a pretty enlightened employer. There are not that many enlightened employers we've found. There are some, and it's great when you find them. But that business model, which is the standard business model where the employer controls the data and the employee, we're still stuck in a world where the idea of planned positive turnover, which I'm very much a fan of. I mean, I've always said, please use Beloco as a stepping stone to a better future. Do not stay here for too long. It will not serve you. If you love hospitality and you love serving others or you just love food, okay. And since we pay you well, our goal has always been, and this is not a high bar, to be the number one highest wage payer in the industry. And the reason I can say that, number one, and I think we've hit it a few times, that you'd be amazed, in and out is one of the higher paying ones. The Zingerman's out in Michigan is well known for high paying, but not really anybody else. Like people often will give Starbucks, Chipotle credit for those kinds of things. And they are right there with the best of them, paying as little as they can get away with and have people show up and have people still show up, which as you know, in the Hanover Starbucks has been a real challenge. Well, actually, Starbucks more generally, going back to your friend Howard Schultz, who made a comeback as CEO for a third round earlier this year. There's a big unionization effort. It's very interesting about unionization because, you know, it was a bigger thing and then it plummeted in America, not so much in some other country, but plummeted. And it's only really been strong I mean, a couple of industries, maybe, but mostly in the government sector, teachers, unions and government workers. But there's something going on now. Maybe it's part of the post-COVID, even though that's not technically the right word, but I'll just say it. The post-COVID world that's changed the equation. I'm curious about how you think about all of that now. Actually, we could even go back to Beloco and I don't know if you want to even talk about that trauma, but dealing with COVID, but more on the worker side, feels like we're at a real inflection point. It's like that old movie. I can't take it anymore. I can't remember what was that network or something. And it's almost like that's what workers, not just workers, but some highly paid people as well. They're kind of saying they can't take us with this great resignation. I want more out of my life. I mean, that's my interpretation of what's going on. There's a podcast I listen to called Pitchfork Economics. 
guy named Nick Hanauer, who is a third rail in many ways in Seattle because he's a billionaire, but he's really been advocating for the fact that the pitchforks are coming. I think what we're seeing is a modern day, these are the pitchforks. The pitchforks have come. People are not putting up with the conditions, the pay, the lack of respect, the lack of benefits. This is today's way of bringing the pitchforks into town hall. And I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, I'm mixed on unions because I've had run-ins myself with real situations where we've been extorted. Boston is difficult when it comes to unions. I got in quite a bit of front page of the paper, my face with Mayor Menino, because I had tweeted something about union rackets and it became a really big news story in 2011. And here's Mayor Menino, he used to come to our board day in Boston. And now we're pitted against each other. He never spoke to me again. But it was always about union tactics traditionally when they didn't go the union's way and very challenging. And I would almost say un-American. And yet the purpose of the union is critical. And some unions, you know, I've worked very closely with the SEIU over the years, do wonderful work for their workers for millions of people. But there's still some that kind of taint it for all. We saw recently Dartmouth food workers unionized. It's kind of everywhere. Yeah, it is. I alluded briefly to COVID and Beloco. So you were kind of wryly laughing about the business was down 9%. And we thought that was terrible back in the Great Recession time. At a zero at 90. That's what almost happened immediately to your, you know, in March of 2020. 90%. Nine to nine. You know, we thought nine was bad. 20 unheard of. 30 is the end of your business. And all of a sudden we're seeing 90, which means you're shutting down. Yeah, I'd never seen anything like it. It was moment to moment. I was 23 years into the business at the time. I had a number of transactions over the years, knew that my life didn't depend on the survival of Beloco. So there was that aspect that was probably not the standard. However, I have a lot of employees and a lot of team members who rely on those jobs. So we kept restaurants open as best we could to keep people employed. And yet, of course, they were faced with the fear of COVID at the same time. And we ended up using the early days of the pandemic. So I'd say for about two months, we were able to do a GoFundMe, not for us, but from all over the country. I think we raised in a matter of a week, we raised $60,000, all of which went to delivering food to the different hospitals here at Hitchcock, but also all the Boston area hospitals. And we just provided food for healthcare workers. And that's how we made our time worthwhile in those early days of the pandemic. But then that came to an end and we started the blocking and tackling that you see throughout the industries now. You had, what, five or six stores at that point? We had eight. We lost two. Yeah, we lost two. Because of COVID? Yeah, we shut them down. We were in negotiations. They were our largest landlords. Humanity, not on their mind. And we were evicted from... Boston Properties kicked us out and WS Development put a Chipotle in instead of us. The interesting thing is how some of the big chains have thrived during COVID. And I give them credit for their technology investments they made, but it's really the haves and the have-nots have really been amplified through COVID. And now 25 years in, you're thinking about what what are you going to do next with Boloco? I know that's top of mind. So the obvious thing somebody will say is, well, you know, it's small, but it's popular, still makes money. Sell it. What's wrong with that idea? It's hard to sell small restaurant businesses where you don't own the real estate. And when you have depressed sales, so in Boston, we have five remaining units. We have the one up here. The one here is doing about what it did three years ago, a little down, but like the recession down, you know, five to 10%. But in Boston, we're still down 30 to 60% versus three years ago. Why is that? Why do you think that is? People haven't gone back to work. Like financial district of Boston, where we have two specifically, not long ago, I was on Federal Street. And I went into a meeting and I said, you know, it's tough out there. And they're like, yeah, but there's people. And I had counted and I was like, but there's six people at lunchtime <laughs> on Federal Street. So this is where it used to be teeming. And so when I ask, I'll talk to the landlords who we've had many challenging conversations with. And the question I'll ask them is, are you working at your office? And the answer is no. And we're at 15, 20, 25% occupancy on good days in the downtown areas. A little bit better as you get closer to some of the schools like the Berkeley College of Music, where we have our original restaurant, Emerson on the Boston Common. They're doing better, but just people are not, it's all about work from home habits that are not temporary. They are here to stay. Yes, people We'll go back to the office, but I don't think we'll ever see 100% of what it was in 2019. So that's just what it is. Got to adjust. So let me ask you about, you said some of the bigger chains have done well, like Chipotle, 
McDonald's or what have you. They're in the same and have more locations in highly trafficked downtown, midtown in Manhattan, you know, the financial district in Boston and everywhere else. What have they done that's different or have they also taken the hit? They're so big they can handle it or what? Yeah. I mean, in the downtown areas, they've taken hits as well. In some cases, like Starbucks, they just close. They've closed permanently in some cases. But yeah, you had to have a balance sheet, a very strong balance sheet to get through COVID without help from the government. And even some of the big chains that did get help in different ways. They also have a lot more power to negotiate with landlords. And so they would make blanket, here's what's happening, here's what we're doing, and this is, and, you know, comes to us. For the small businesses, when you get sued by one of your very few landlords, if not your only landlord, and that's game over. It's over. And then I will say this, the technology investments in marketing, in targeting, I think the small businesses right now, we don't have the technology. I'm investing in technology that does allow businesses like ours to compete with the big chains. A little bit for Beloka, but just more in general, I think it's a big space that's going to grow. But generally speaking, there have been no affordable technology options that allow us as small businesses to stop the drip of pulling one customer at a time day after day. You wake up five years later, you've lost your customer base because the marketing is so savvy these days. It's slick. What would be a good example of a technology you're seeing or investing in that would enable the smaller players to match up a lot closer to the big time chains? So just the availability, how technology, the pricing for development seems to just keep coming down. But one of the companies that I'm working with very closely is created what you call a customer journey. Instead of just putting all your customer name databases into a constant contact and doing a big old blast, it starts to really segment. And these have been things that have been really limited to larger companies. But so for instance, we'll be able to understand the habits of a new customer, the habits of a semi-regular, the habits of a vegetarian, the habits of people who are celiac and send messages to them that apply to them, which has a great impact on loyalty, you know, desire to return. That just hasn't been available to small business at any sort of scale or affordable solutions. That's, I guess, a good example. That is a good example. And then so the solution is coming from startups that are developing that technology. I think I've invested in, I have a small fund. It's called 211 VC. And I've made either myself or through the fund about 35 investments in number one, start technology startups that do what Worthy tries to do, which is put empowerment in the hands of the worker. If I can't build it, I'm going to invest. Two is anything that empowers small business, restaurants and hospitality. And three is I have a few really pet brands like Spindrift and Athletic Brewing Company I talk about all the time, which is a non-alcoholic beer company and some other consumer products that I just have a real passion for and have put money behind them in their early days. And each of these cases, you're outside investor, maybe an advisor for some. I'm a passionate customer, often an early adopter as a customer from through the business. I do use Boloco today as a Petri dish for interesting new technologies. I aggressively implement things that aren't always so great for our business, but inform us on what is good for the business, but also helps me make investment decisions. Interesting. Do you still have the same partners from way back? No. From Beloka, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, Greg, the guy who kind of brought us all together left after a year and a half. So he left in 99, went off to business school. Adam, ironically, spoke to Adam recently for the first time in seven years, but he was with us for 13 years. You know, it's one of those things where we all have our period of useful time in a company. My useful life at Beloco came to a quick end in 2013, but I started to get a sense that I should probably step back in 2011 and brought it to my board and they would convince me that I was, no, you're right. I felt like there's so many people who have seen this, done this, they should do this scaling. I'm not that interested in it. I don't even think I'm going to be that good at it. At one point we were all gone. And then of course I bought the business back in 2015, which is why I own it today. We don't have a ton of time left and there are a bunch of other things I want to talk about, but let's kind of make a 180 degree turn and talk about something I'm interested in. I bet plenty of listeners are interested in Animal House, <laughs> the legendary movie oh my that was about this frat house at Dartmouth. And I think you were, I'm not going to say you were part of Animal House, I'll let you decide that, but that was the frat you were part of. You've been really involved with it. I think we did a social thing there once, you know, for book club a long time ago. Yeah. That's right. First of all, why did it close down? It seems like it's been closed as a fraternity for students for a long time. 
since 2015. I would call it a darker period of my life, which has been, I wouldn't say it's haunted me, but it's definitely been something that I've had to give a lot of thought to. When I chose Dartmouth, because I got into Dartmouth, I didn't actually think I'd get in, but I targeted that fraternity. I felt like that was going to be something that was going to make my Dartmouth experience that much richer. The drinking culture in many universities is difficult, is challenging. Dartmouth, it has always been the case. And at AD, I think it right at the top. For some of us, and that doesn't work out so well over the years, right? And I've met many people who have seen that. You know, I put too much emphasis on my experience as an Animal House member, which we used to be very proud of. Even when I got to Tuck a few years later, myself and a couple other people, we paid dues at these different fraternities so that we had full access when we were at Tuck. But anyway, the one thing that did come out of AD and many other organizations like it, despite some of the negative aspects of them, is just really good friendships oftentimes built around drinking events, which I have a lot of thoughts about today because in 2015, they were finally kicked off for a number of different violations over the years. But there was one final violation, which was very minor, which was they had a party apparently that had more than 25 people and they had not properly registered. I will not tell you the stories that made that such an important thing for the college to do because that's just not for this podcast. It's for another podcast. (laughs) But I've spoken to the chief of police. I became president of the alumni group that owns the house in 2017 after I was sure that our alumni base didn't want to continue to file lawsuits against the town and anybody else who didn't agree. And my goal for the four years that I was in charge was to create a positive space for the community, for Dartmouth. This is the ironic piece about AD is that today, when the pandemic hit, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings were all closed, all the local churches. And so AD has served and still does as a group meeting place for the whole community for the last two years, four times a week. It's super ironic. There's a few people who will walk in there and they'll be kind of like, oh my God, this brings back, this triggers memories of drinking for people who haven't had drinks for 20, 30 years, but other people just love it. They love the idea that this is where so many people started. Full disclosure, like I go to those, I haven't had a drink in two and a half years and I've been to more AA meetings in my fraternity than I went to actual meetings as an undergrad. So I feel good about that. So just one more, and this is a big question, so we can't get into every aspect of it, but fraternities, sororities are very big at Dartmouth, but many other universities as well. And we're in an era where finally there's more than just lip service being given to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. I mean, sure, there's way more to be done. I know there is, but I think we've come a very long way. How do we reconcile this where you have fraternity sororities that are about handpicking, selecting people? They can make whatever criteria they want, but humans being humans, people tend to gravitate towards others that look like them or act like them or have a similar background. And then, as you mentioned, the drinking culture is not exactly disappeared as well. So it's obviously a really big question. I'm sorry to spring it at you after one hour, oh, it's okay. but I'm curious about your thoughts because you've thought about this and you're, as you said, been part of a rehabilitation of AD, the frat. Yeah, we've made a number of proposals to the college that include just an open membership, no gender focus at all, like no gender, because that's the world we live in now. Where I think the biggest challenge still lies in organizations that have a history and have alumni or former members is that you've still got just hangups of how people grew up 20 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly 60 years ago. There's a lot of pushback that people feel in terms of moving forward with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then sometimes you see there's certain affinity groups that do find their way together. And that seems to be okay. And I think when you're behind closed doors, there's a lot of pushback. People don't hear this a lot because they're not behind those closed doors, but from older white men who don't appreciate what's taking place. You know, you just have to balance like figuring out how we're going to move forward as a relevant, inclusive organization that's popular. And it turns out today's young people They don't even think about it in the same way. And so at some point here, AD is going to open. It's probably going to be quite inclusive. You know, it'll have an interesting reputation from its past and it'll push forward as whatever it becomes. It has a great chance of becoming something more meaningful, purposeful. And part of that is because I think we've got a pretty thoughtful board of directors. There's 11 people that run that place. used to be one. And secondly is today's generation. That's what they do without thinking about it. That part is very true. I've seen that teaching 30 years here at Dartmouth and each generation that comes in. There are big differences in the mindset. It's internal already. It's natural. 
it's the way things are or should be. And there's a lot of pushback when it's not. And that's true for not just diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's absolutely true for environmental and social issues. Mm-hmm. I never seen this much attention to it from students, whether they're undergrad or MBAs. And I think that's good because there are some MBA schools that don't have the best reputation because it's all about the money. I think that's less so. I think that's less true than it's ever been for lots and lots of places. So if Frat House in Hanover, it's going to reopen it one day because it's been empty, not quite empty. Didn't you make it like a space for startups or something like this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I should have said that. Yeah, that was the first thing we did with it in 17 is we renovated the second floor. It's housed all kinds of startups. The Dartmouth publication was in there when Dartmouth wouldn't let them in the administrative building. So we've had super interesting startups. Trust, which we're familiar with that startup, but Dartmouth psychology professor started that and has since been sold and a good exit for a lot of us who were part of it. So really interesting group of people. A couple tuck startups have been through there. There's still one in there right now. AD is not going away. It definitely has a checkered past in many ways and certainly in the eyes of a lot of people outsiders. But I think there's a lot of good people who are part of it. Well, it's interesting to get that different type of use from place for startups to a place for AA meetings. Pretty interesting. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And there's a women's society that meets there too, by the way, on Monday night. So one of the, I guess they call them secret senior societies is using the space too. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I'll give you one last question I'd like to wrap up my podcast with, which is the advice question, except it's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back to when you were 21 years old, you could lean over to the 21-year-old John Pepper and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know, there's one thing you want to do or not do, or there's something you just can't understand now, but you'll wish you did this or didn't do this for that matter. What would be that bit of advice to the 21-year-old John Pepper? It's funny. It's hard to be honest on this one. I would definitely tell 21-year-old John that you had fun in college. Let's put it aside. Let's enjoy life without alcohol. Early on, I would say earlier on, it took me too long to understand the advantages that I had and understand that I was going to be okay in every circumstance and that my job was to use that advantage and put that advantage at risk because I could afford no matter what I did, as I've learned, no matter how much risk I took that could hurt me, it was never going to actually stop me from being able to take additional risk on behalf of doing the right thing through my company and standing strong for the things that I felt were right. We didn't talk about my family, but my family is a very naive family. My father, who was the CEO of Parker & Gamble for many years, was not your typical CEO. And he instilled in us values that we thought were pretty corny. They just stick with you. And doing the right thing at all costs, something he has in the past told me I've gone too far on. But at the same time, now that he's 82, my mom's 80 and I'm 52, now there's no debate. You need to do the right thing at all costs when you start with the advantages that some of us have. And I would have just wanted to know that when I was 21 more than I did and believe it. Intellectually, you could know it, but emotionally because you haven't lived your life, very specific type of life, and there's not that many years all considered. It's hard to do that. Well, thanks for sharing that, John. That's very interesting. So time to wrap up. I always say we can go for another hour or two. John, thanks a lot for being part of the SIDCast, sharing your story, your insights, and your adventures with all of us. Thank you. It was cathartic. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. I'll send you my therapy bill in the mail. Take care, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.